All right. Good morning. First Peter chapter three. We'll just read verse seven together because that's where we'll be, and we'll finish up um, exhorting husbands. So First Peter three verse seven. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives according to knowledge or in an understanding way. As with the weaker vessel or with someone weaker, since she is a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. So that your prayers will not be hindered. Let's pray. Father, so much richness in these words. And as the psalmist prays, we pray, Lord, give us understanding. Unfold your words to us so that we may have light, because in your light we see light. And we know that it's the unfolding of your words that makes simple people wise. And so, Lord, that's what we need. We, we need you to unfold. We need you to give understanding. Lord, we want our hearts to burn as we consider these things. Um, Lord, as we just relish in the truth. And, Lord, just be with the husbands as they, as they listen to these words, that they would take them to heart, that they would value their wives in a way that perhaps they haven't before, or in a fresh way, in a way that demonstrates that they understand how you value them. Lord, in the end, so that their prayers can bring forth much fruit in their own lives and in the lives of many others. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last time we were together, we talked about the first part of verse 7. Husbands, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives. The, The NAS translates it in an understanding way. So we pointed out the fact that this is... Uh, Peter is addressed now, shifting a focus away from wives to husbands, in specific, Christian husbands. And these Christian husbands are to live with their wives in a certain way. And that certain way is according to knowledge. That is, they're to get their mind engaged when they're living with this, this precious person that God has brought into their lives, their wives. And they are to live with them according to knowledge. They are to learn them. They are to understand them. They are to grow in their intimacy with them. They are to, to take intentional um, effort to, to understand what makes them tick, what makes them grieved, what makes them encouraged. This, honestly, it's, it's, it's more challenging for men than I think sometimes we realize because as men, we're made to sort of stand on our own two feet and we, we, don't, like to, uh, we don't like to babysit, so to speak, right? So when I'm at work and I have subcontractors, I don't like to babysit them. I assume they're going to just know their job and do their thing and go on with life and that kind of thing. Um, but, but as a man leading a family, a man who's leading a family, and especially leading a wife, that is created completely different. We are meant to understand the things that she needs. We are meant to understand the things that help encourage her. We are not there to neglect her. We are not there to um, treat her harshly, these kinds of things. We are to dwell with her according to knowledge. Um, and Peter puts a premium on this. I mean, a premium, I mean, a premium on this that maybe you don't even expect, really. 
when he says that if you don't do this, your prayers will be hindered. That's a big deal. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But, but dwell with these women in an understanding way as with someone weaker. That women are weaker. The text says here that she is weaker not by culture, but because she is a woman. It is rooted in her very design, the fact that she is weaker. And this is not a weakness intellectually, certainly not. Not a weakness in oratory skill. Not a weakness in, um, in, in, in many other ways that in terms of administration, these kinds of things. But there's a weakness physically, certainly. There's also a weakness emotionally. And, that, and that's part of the way the Lord has wired women, to have the heart that oftentimes men don't have, frankly. To, to, to be the ones that are the best comforters. To be the ones that are the best nurturers. This is who the Lord has designed them to be. And so a man is to understand that and dwell with her as someone who, who is different and is weaker. And he says that, she, that the husbands are to show her honor. This idea of honor is, the way I sort of boiled it down was to make her feel special. I mean, to, to help her understand she is in, immensely valuable. Immensely valuable. This word honor just means to spotlight. That's kind of the idea. You think of honor, honorary ceremonies, these kinds of things where you spotlight individuals for certain accomplishments, these kinds of things. The husband is to be apportioning honor to his wife in an ongoing way, considering her, listening to her, um, preferring her, these kinds of things. Certainly doesn't mean that we, you know, indulge the, uh, the American idea of the princess, right? Most of the women here, I think, wouldn't want that anyway. That's not what Peter's getting at. He's, he's saying that we, as husbands, are to prefer our wives, laboring to figure out what encourages them, what makes them feel appreciated genuinely, affirming them, these kinds of things. In the book of Proverbs, it's the husband that praises the wife. Right? Um, her praise comes from her husband. And this is important because women, I don't know if you know this or not, hopefully you know this about yourself, but you really thrive on that. And that's a good thing. You should. Um, and as a matter of fact, you have this impulse to get recognition and a sense of self-worth from somewhere. And husbands, we need to understand that too. Because sometimes if, we're, if she's not getting it from her husband, she's, she's going to be fighting against getting it from somewhere else. And so as husbands, we need to be filling that gap of encouraging our wives, encouraging her in Christ, reminding, of, reminding her of her Savior's love for her, Reminding her of how valuable she is to us, to him, these kinds of things. This, all of these things have to do with honoring the wife. Okay, well today, Peter is going to explain a little bit further about why we are to honor them. And it again goes along with her value. But listen to the language that Peter gives to the wife. This is a Christian wife. It's really staggering. He says, show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. A fellow heir of the grace of life. Now, the whole idea of being an heir is a big deal. It's a big deal in the Old Testament. Huge theme throughout the scriptures. Inheritance has a root back in the Old Testament, beginning with the idea of, of a father entrusting his inheritance or his wealth to a child, usually firstborn son. That firstborn son, upon the death of the father, acquires the wealth of the father once he dies. So you can think about Abraham and Isaac right? Um, God promises Abraham a son. 
promises a son that will be an heir. And so the idea of, of heir here with Abraham and Isaac is that Isaac is called the firstborn, even though he's not the firstborn, but writer of Hebrews calls him the firstborn. But he's the firstborn in the sense that he gets the promises of God made to Abraham. He's the promised seed. And this whole idea of inheritance is bound in that firstborn and the promise of an inheritance. And then God actually calls Israel his firstborn son, doesn't he? When, when he's going to deliver them from Egypt, he calls Israel my firstborn son. And that's, that's why his heart burns when they are oppressed. And he wants them delivered and out from underneath the bondage that they were under. So it expands to Israel, and, and not only that, but because Israel's the firstborn, God promises them an inheritance, certainly rooted in the promises to Abraham, but it promises them an inheritance right to the promised land, to the land of Canaan. He promises that this will be their land. They just need to go seize it by faith. <clears throat> and, but when they come in, and when they come into the land of Canaan, they do have the land apportioned to them under Joshua, and they receive this inheritance in part anyway, and they experience some really like genuine physical rest. Many victories won under the leadership of Joshua. Many of the tribes of Israel, if not all of them, if I, memory serves, end up taking residence in portions of the land. And so they had some rest over their, over their enemies. And yet the Israelites, due to their unbelief, they didn't finally experience the ultimate ongoing rest that God has in mind from her enemies. So we learn that Canaan, in the Old Testament, is not the ultimate inheritance that the Lord has in mind, but just a picture. Just a picture, just a shadow of what God has in mind ultimately. I want you to understand that this idea of heir, that the wife finds herself in, is a big deal. It's, it's rooted, has all these it has all these conceptual roots through the Old Testament and ultimately in the mind of the Lord. So we learn that Canaan's not the ultimate inheritance the Lord has in mind. So the scriptures pick up on this tension that God promises inheritance to Israel. They don't achieve it under the Old Covenant. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us this. For if Joshua had given them rest... He would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So Joshua picks up on that. We don't have time to go into it because he's thinking about Psalm 95. In Psalm 95, it actually says, God is explaining through the psalmist that because of the people's unbelief, he says, they shall not enter my rest. So this assumes, the writer of Hebrews is thinking, well, wait a minute. I thought Joshua gave them rest, but yet God is saying, these Israelites are not going to enter my rest. Therefore, Joshua says, oh, there must be a rest to come. And so the writer of Hebrews picks up on that, and he calls it the Sabbath rest, the people of God. So that's sort of what's going on here. The, the other aspect of inheritance, though, that's rich, and I'm just giving you snapshots of it, again, rooted in the Old Testament, is that in Psalm 2, there's this son, this kingly Davidic son that reigns upon a throne He's the, also the promised son of Abraham. And now there's this interchange between him and the father to have the nations as his inheritance. You can read that back at your, at your leisure. Where the, son, where, where the father says to the son, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. So that's rich. So, so what's God's inheritance? Well, God's inheritance is us. 
The Lord Jesus' inheritance is us. He gets us. And he's, he's happy with that. He loves that. He died for us, after all. So that's this, this, it's just this rich notion of, of Jesus Christ is the firstborn son. And God gives him an inheritance. And because we're adopted in Jesus Christ, we're a part of that inheritance now. It's rich. It's, it's a massive thing. Listen to this. Romans 8, 16, and 17, Paul knows this. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Right? That's an experiential thing. You know that you know God. And if we're children, if we're children of God, then we're heirs also. Yeah, it's tied to sonship. It's tied to being a part of his family. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The risen, kingly son of David, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. There's suffering yet to be experienced for these heirs, for us. So we partake of the inheritance because we're children of God. We know that we're children because we have his spirit. And all this means that we are fellow heirs with Jesus. And what is it that we fundamentally get? Did you hear it in Romans 8? Even beyond the new heavens and the new earth, what do we get here? We're heirs of what? God. Did you hear it? Listen. If we are children of God, it's because we have the Spirit. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God. Now that, it doesn't get any bigger than that. It doesn't get any more glorious than that. It is the apex. That's the pinnacle. That's the the infinite treasure that we have by being blood-bought children of Jesus Christ. We are heirs of God. What does that mean? It means that for you, You have God. You belong to God. He belongs to you. And all that it means for him to be God is yours. His love, his grace, his heart. His glory. His glory with his son. All these things. We get God. Husbands, your wives belong to God. They get God. Too. As much as you do, they are loved and cared for and, and rich beyond measure, just like you are. And that's why Peter brings this up. Look at your wife who's in Christ. God is just as happy for her, belonging to Him, as He is happy for you. And again, in the, in this, in the society in which Peter lives, certainly they are far more marginalized than they are in our day, women, that is. And so this would have been very stark. Can you imagine this in a Muslim context? A context where women are, are continually mistreated and abused and beaten and far worse every day. And let's say this Muslim man becomes a Christian and, and he's still got some of those residual, uh, I don't know, domineering ideas. And he reads this. Wow, my wife is royalty just like I am. My wife is an heir just like I am. 
So Peter speaks of this inheritance that the wife enjoys. She's a fellow heir with. So he speaks of this inheritance that we await, and he has some things to say about it. In 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So again, glorious things here. This inheritance that we get, unlike the inheritance Israel experienced, right, that was sort of there in part and yet they lost it, that won't happen to us. It won't happen to us. It's, it's incorruptible. It's undefiled. It won't fade away. We never will lose it. There will be no more conquests. Isn't that, isn't that rich? We are there forever. In a new heavens and a new earth in which the glory of Jesus Christ is the light of that place. This is, this is what we enjoy in Jesus Christ. And the woman, the wife of 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 this Christian husband. She's united to Jesus. She's an heir as well. She's equally valuable to Christ. She will be with you in glory. Think of that. She will be there. She will be there. She was worth the blood that Jesus shed for her. She gets a plot. It may even be larger than yours one day. Who knows? Very well could be. I know that the reason I am able to do the things that I do is because I have a wife who's great. All right, so she's an heir. She's an heir of the grace of life. An heir of the grace of life. What do we learn here about this woman, this heir? Well, she's a sinner, all right? Well, well, that sounds really bad, right, Chris? She says grace there. Well, the reality is sinners need grace. And yet, she's got grace. She has the grace of God. She has the favor of God. She has the love of God. Her inheritance is not gained by her good works or her, her religiosity or her, her goodness, just like yours isn't, but by grace. She has the love of God even though she deserves the wrath of God. She is a recipient of grace. What an incredible notion that we are loved by simply the amazing loving nature of God. And his goodwill towards us. God lavishes this grace upon us in Jesus Christ, even though we do not deserve it. Listen to how Paul brings grace and life together in Romans 5. Peter says, Grace of life. The grace of life. She's an heir of the grace of life. Listen to this Romans 5, 18 through 21. I was tempted to read the whole chapter, but. So Paul says, So then, as, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, that was from Adam, right? Adam sinned, and we are bearing the results of that. The condemnation that is spread to all men everywhere through Adam's transgression. Even so, through one act of righteousness, also it's through one act of righteousness, 
Where was that? That was at the cross. It's the cross that gains the righteousness of God. Through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. There's the idea of life. He's talking about eternal life. Life that Jesus purchases for us through the one act. For as through the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, that's us, even so through the obedience of the one, that's Jesus, the many, that's us, will be made righteous. The law, under Moses, came in so that the transgression would increase. See, the law didn't come in to save anybody. The law came in to say, you can't get there from here. And to make sin even more apparent and and clear. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So it's like the law highlights sin, but it highlights grace. How big is grace? Well, Well, think of the billions of sins that people have committed to transgress that law. Well, those billions of sin do not stack up against the massive wealth and wave of God's grace. God's grace abounds over sin. What a rich gospel we have. Think of your sin. There's more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in you. We could stop there and just glory in that. Period. Grace abounds all the more. Got a little excited and took me up to page one. And I've got about 110 pages here. So, not for today, but um, in First Peter. So, grace. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Wives, if you're in Jesus Christ this morning, you are righteous in God's sight. 100% righteous. As righteous as you'll ever be right now. Right now. Think of that. Free gift of God's grace, rooted in Jesus Christ, purchased by His blood. See, your faith connects you to the saving work of Jesus. It's not your faith that saves you. It's Jesus Christ that saves you. And your faith connects you to Him. That's what it is. Jesus Christ saves you. It's His work that saves you. And now death doesn't reign in your life. Grace reigns in your life. This is what it says. Grace abounded all the more. I didn't finish the verse, did I? So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So death doesn't reign in your life, Christian wife. Grace reigns in your life through righteousness that Jesus purchased unto eternal life. You have eternal life. Right now, you have eternal life. It's amazing. Listen to Ephesians 2, 5 through 9 with regard to grace. We haven't talked about grace in a little while, so I figured it would be good to spend a minute on it. Ephesians 2. If you want definitions, good definitions. There's another one in Romans 11 that's really good, but this one's good too. Romans 2, 5 through 9, when you're thinking about defining grace, you know, we all hear unmerited favor, and that's true, but the language here just fills it out even more, doesn't it? Verse 4 of chapter 2, Paul talking about who we were, we're dead in sin, objects of wrath, 
indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, those kinds of things. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy. Now just listen to the language here, because all of this language here, the synonym, the shorthand for it is grace. Listen. Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's what he's saying. He's saying that, that this verse that, that, that captures the love of God, his great love, his rich mercy, on people dead in sin, is another way of saying, by grace you've been saved. It's grace is God's immense love and mercy on those who were dead in sin. That's what grace is. It's an undeserved love of God on the wicked that you and I are. It's good to know you're wicked at some level. It's really good because then you'll understand the love of God for you. That's why Paul says it. Paul does go back. Some people might think, why are you dwelling on the negative, Paul? Why are you telling me I was dead? Why are you telling me I used to walk with Satan? Why are you telling me that I used to be worldly and indulge my desires? I mean, come on, we're past all that. He's like, no, you need to know it. You need to know it. Because if you don't know it, you'll begin to think that you made yourself this. You made yourself this dedicated, righteous follower of God. No, you need to know. You need to know who you were. You need to know. Do you know? Have you ever come to terms with that? That you are in desperate need of the grace of God? That you have no works to commend yourself to God at all? So again, Christian husband, how have you been viewing your wife? She gets grace. She's been loved immensely by God. Do you see her do you see her like that? Do you see her like that? Do you see her as precious? Do you see her as a slave? Hope not. Peter wants you to see her as royalty. Precious treasure. Bought with his blood. Saved by grace. And he wants you to consider your wives in this manner so that your prayers won't be hindered. So that your prayers won't be hindered. So he assumes Christian men are praying. I hope you're praying. Praying is vital in the truest sense of the word, vital. It's one of the ways you abide in Jesus Christ, it's the way you live is to pray. And I struggle with prayer like you do, but we got to pray. And I'm always encouraged, this is my notes, but I'm always encouraged, and I think it's Ephesians 6, Paul says pray at all times. And that's just a blessing. You know? We need, we need to have places that we pray, regular places to pray if we can, but if we don't, we can still pray at all times. Isn't that awesome? We can pray anywhere. Anytime. It's okay. Pray. At all times. I love that. But he assumes that Christians are going to be praying, but this is a warning here for, for Christian husbands not honoring their wives. 
He wants you to honor your wife so that your prayers won't be hindered. He's, he's holding it out there as a warning, but also an encouragement. In other words, if you're treating your wife this way, you're gonna, you're gonna, your prayers are going to be heard. They're going to be answered. If you want to know the blessing of God, the joy of Christ, bear fruit in your life and in the lives of others, you have a priority of honoring your wife. You want to see a man that is fruitful in his life and useful to the Lord? I bet you, I bet you, he honors his wife. I bet you when he's around others, he's not, he's not demeaning his wife. He's not there saying how she's this or she's that. He watches his mouth with his wife. And when he's not around his wife, when he's talking to others. So that your prayers will not be hindered. Well, what does this mean exactly? The NIV translates it, I should have wrote it down here, but the NIV translates it in a way where they're, where I think it's, does someone have the NIV? I don't mean to pick on you because I pick on the NAS too, sometimes. Um, they, they translate, I wish I'd have wrote it down, something like, something like, so there won't be a hindrance to your prayers, so, or so there won't be a hindrance to your prayer life or something like that, I can't remember, Sorry. But what they're communicating there is that the relationship with the wife, because it's not good, means that you're less likely to pray. You know, there'll be an obstacle there, you're not getting along and that kind of thing. And I'm sure that that's true at some level. I'm sure that's true at some level. I don't think that's what Peter is saying, though. He doesn't say so that your praying will not be hindered. But I mean, I, I. But again, I mean, it, it's possible. But I don't think that's what it is. Peter also uses the plural prayers, actual prayers that are prayed. And what happens to these prayers that are prayed with husbands that don't honor their wives? They are hindered. It's the prayers themselves that are hindered, not the one praying them. I think it's. I think that helps us unlock what Peter's after here. Now again, it's linked to the guy praying him. <laughs> but it's the prayers that are blocked and that are hindered. And Peter brings this up as something that the husbands need to recognize and maybe they don't. The, I, the word for hindered here is the, work, is the word block, prevent, impede, cut into, interrupt, that's the idea. So Paul uses the term when he tried multiple times to get to the Thessalonians, but he said, we tried, but Satan hindered us. He hindered us. That means Paul didn't make it. He was blocked. Now how Paul knew it was Satan, that's a good discussion, isn't it? One thing we do know, though, is Satan doesn't like the people of God getting together. But Satan blocked him. Paul, block Paul. That's interesting. So that's the idea. A husband who does not honor his wife, but is harsh with her, negligent toward her in an ongoing way, doesn't care to know her, he should not think that God will honor his prayers, answer his prayers, no matter how theologically accurate or frequent they are. 
Your theology doesn't mean anything if there isn't love. It doesn't. I hope we know that here. We, we, we're, all, we're very thankful of the clarity God's given us in his word. If we don't have love, it means nothing. Matter of fact, could heap up more condemnation on us in the day of judgment. There must be love. It has to be there. Our theology and the truth that we know must compel us to live like Christ. It's about love. It's about honoring our wives. God takes this extremely seriously. And I also want to say this. There is a cause and effect relationship in the Christian life. There is cause and effect relationship in the Christian life. When you do things or do not do things, it affects the Lord and so affects your spiritual life. I think that in reform circles, justification gets misapplied all the time. It, it is meant to sort of gloss and cover over everything such that your activity, good or bad, doesn't really matter. And I just want to tell you, it matters a lot. <laughs> it matters as to what kind of rewards you will see in the day of judgment. It matters to give evidence as to who you truly are, as to whether or not you really are justified or not. Your works will evidence that. It matters whether the Spirit is grieved or not. Here, it matters whether your prayers are heard and answered or blocked by God. That's a big deal. There is cause and effect in the Christian life. God is a person. He is not a systematic theology sitting in the sky. He's not a confession of faith. He's not a piece of granite. He's our Father. He cares. He cares how you live. Husbands. I did a quick study on how often the scriptures record God deliberately closing his ears to the prayers of people. It's bigger than you think. Now, I can't go through all of them. And most of the few that I'm going to mention, um, they're really just going to be angled toward believers. That the Lord doesn't hear the prayer of believers. Yes, that's what I said. Believers. So let's listen to a couple of them. Psalm 66, 16 through 19. Come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell of what he has done for my soul. So the psalmist is in a good spot. He wants to tell everyone what the Lord has done for him. Well, what, what happened, psalmist? Well, I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. And then he says, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear But certainly God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. So the psalmist has this idea that he's praised the Lord. The Lord has answered. But he knows that if there's a sin that has been regarded in his heart, wickedness in my heart, he says, been regarded, the Lord will not hear. Obviously, we know the Lord will hear it probably technically but he will not acknowledge it and he will certainly not answer it but before we even dip into that can we just look at the fact that God heard this man and this man knew it he knew it 
He knew that. Can you say that God has heard you? Can you testify like this? Think of it. Man, I was praying and the Lord answered. Can you think of that answered prayer? Is that part of your normal? I'm not saying every day necessarily. Hopefully it is. But just fairly regularly, there were these things I prayed the Lord heard. Can you say that? Psalmist, the psalmist does. Is prayer just a doctrine to you? Think about it. Is it just a doctrine? Is it merely that? We know we're all to pray. Check. Or is it air support? That you know you need every day. (laughs) And I mean even in little things, brethren, pray. He cares for you. So much. How many things we could resolve if we would literally just pray? Drop our sin, just pray. Don't be anxious and fret, pray. He cares. Peter, that's what Peter says later. We'll get to that in 10 years, right? In chapter 5. Cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. All the little stuff. All the little stuff. Even. Pray. The psalmist says, I prayed, he answered. That's rich. He knew he answered. He could tell us that the Lord answered. That's rich. But he knew God would not hear those who have unrepentant sin. Cherished sin, as some translations say. Regarded sin. That is, it's it's the kind of thing where you don't see the sin that you're nursing as something to flee from something to discard or put to death. You're okay with it sticking around. You, you've justified it. You, you know, one definition I saw of this word regard that, that the writer uses is best wishes. It's, it's like you have this affinity for it. You feel justified in holding on to that anger. You feel justified in holding on to that, that stonewalling to your wife. You feel justified in it. You regard it. This is what she needs. You don't want to go there. God won't listen to your prayers. Unless it's, Lord, forgive me me my harshness with my wife. And he'll be like, it's okay. Come on, let's go make it right. (laughs) He'll listen to that. He'll listen to that. But God will not listen to the prayers of people, even people that know him who are holding on to sin. Their lives will look shriveled and depressed. No testimony of the Lord's answered prayers. Just dried up. James 1, 5-7 But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. So this is a prayer for wisdom. Lord, give me insight into this situation, into this suffering, whatever it is. It's the context of suffering here persevering under trials. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, 
and it will be given to him. So that's wonderful. God's generous when he gives. Satan wants to tell you he's not very generous. He'll give you a little bit. You know. It will be given to him, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought to not expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. What? Doubt? How vital is faith to prayer, to answered prayer? How vital is that? How vital is it to take the Lord seriously? That, okay, Lord, you said it, I believe it, I'm going to pray that way. How vital is that? It's pretty vital. Listen to this, Mark 6, 6. And Jesus could do no miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. It's not an issue of the Lord's willingness. It's not an issue of the Lord's power. Remember the time when the disciples went out and they couldn't cast out the demons? And they were like, why? Jesus said, this one's cast out. This kind's by prayer. And he calls them, he, he, he rebukes some adulterous generation. He puts the blame squarely on their shoulders. You ever thought about that? Staggering. We're used to health well folks sort of hijacking these verses, but just because there's abuse, it doesn't nullify the meaning of the verse. It doesn't nullify the fact the verse is there. Listen to this. Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, because remember Jesus withered up the fig tree, symbolic of the withering fruit of Jerusalem and all that. But the disciples see him, touch the tree. They came back later and saw, whoa, it's withered, it's gone. They're staggered. Jesus says, if you have faith and don't doubt, you'll not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, so maybe he points to the mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. I know this isn't exactly pertinent to what we're talking about with wives and husbands, but I think I'm talking about when prayers are not answered. And here, faith is critical. That you actually take God at his word. Jesus says mountains can be moved when saints believe without doubting. What are the mountains? I don't know. What are they? What are they? I think we can at least say they are things that are near and dear to his heart. Mountains the Lord wants this church to move. What are they? What are they? They're there. Jesus says they're there, and Jesus says we can move them if we'll trust him. Praying in faith. God wants us to take it seriously. God wants us to pray. He doesn't want mountains to hinder or limit our decisions to labor for him. 
It's so discouraging when saints don't have this attitude. Now, don't hear me wrong. If you're struggling and you're just honest about it, I'm not gonna, it's not like we should beat each other up when we're struggling because we all get to the point to where we're like, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, don't we? I mean, we all get there. But even that is just a wonderful prayer, isn't it? Lord, I, I know. I don't have the faith I need. Help it. Give it to me. That's wonderful. But when it's just a when it was when it's just excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse as to why you can't be fruitful and do this or that, it's so discouraging. It grieves the spirit of God. Lord, I can't talk. I can't. What am I going to do, Pharaoh? Really? I've been living in the in this podunk rural town for forty years. I'm not even a good speaker. God said, it's not about you. I'll be with you. That's it. That's the variable. <laughs> the variable is, we've got God. It's not, about, it's, not, it's, not about, it's not about great faith. It's about faith, period, in what God has said, praying accordingly, not doubting. That's, Jesus says it. He, he pinpoints doubting. James pinpoint, pinpoints doubting. These kind of verses make us uncomfortable, don't they? I don't really like that. I wish it wasn't like that. Because it calls you to account. It causes you to believe. It causes you to trust him. It causes you to take his word seriously. Brethren, if we doubt the Lord, we're going to miss out on mountains moved. And again, I don't want to go on and articulate all those things for you. It could be it could be relational. It could be salvation. It could be ministries the Lord has for us. It can be a number of things. Think big. Steve always says that, right? He's like, if you don't have plans for your life, I do. <laughs> Steve thinks big. And that's good because that accords with what Jesus says here. Moving mountains. That's what we want to do and we want to pray that way. Nothing's impossible for the Lord. Listen to James 4, 2, and 3. You lust and you do not have. You lust and you do not have. There was this, well anyway, let me just read the verse. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So on the one hand, James can say you don't have because you're not asking. Again, that's encouraging, isn't it? What do you want? What do you want in your life for the Lord? Well, start asking him for it, right? He's not going to give you a rock if you ask him for bread. But what they don't have that maybe they didn't know they didn't have but needed was contentment and a, and a stable identity in Jesus, right? They're lusting, they don't have, they commit murder, they're envious, they can't obtain, they fight and they quarrel. What do they need? They need contentment. They need to be satisfied in Jesus. They need to, be, they need to have their identity rooted. They don't have that. They need to ask for that, but they're not. Instead, they're turning and, and they're picking on other people and, and quarreling. That's what's happening. They fight. And he says, you ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Wrong motives. They're quarreling people and they're asking with wrong motives. 
I just thought about this with parent-child relationships. I mean, your children, let's say they're being mean to each other, causing conflict, fighting, can't seem to say one nice word to each other at all. And then they come up to you afterwards and they say, hey, can I go fishing down at the pond? Or, hey, can I have an ice cream bar? Or, as a parent, you're going to be like, no. Absolutely not. You need to go make this right with your siblings. You need to go, you know, get your heart right. I'm not rewarding you and you've been selfish with your siblings. I mean, we do that as parents, don't we? And the Lord does that with us. You need to go make this right. And then more than that, this, this motives of spending it on your pleasures. James says, these people do pray. What do they pray? I don't know. Lord bless us. Lord help us in some way. They're praying people, but they're not receiving the blessing or the help that they're wanting. Why? Because they're praying with selfish motives. They spend it on their pleasures. Perhaps they are praying for material prosperity, but it's so that they can have the nice, new, shiny thing. Imagine the business owner who says he prays all the time. I can just see this. I can see the, the, the caricature in my mind of the Southern Christian man, nominal Christian, prays all the time, Lord bless my business. But really what he's praying for is that he'll get more and more money so he can have more and more stuff. There's no kingdom-oriented thing. There's that, that's just not really in his brain. You can just see that happening. Versus the business owner that's praying for the Lord to prosper the business so the employees can be provided for, they can provide for their family so that they can invest in the kingdom and good works and those kinds of things. That's the right motive. It's not wrong to pray, Lord prosper us, as long as it's for Him and for the necessities that we have. Those are, those are fine things. But anyway, your motives matter to the Lord, big time. Here's just a couple more, I won't comment, we're running out of time. Proverbs twenty-one thirteen. He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. Right. He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor. If we're greedy or tight-fisted or rationalizing away opportunities to help the poor, we close our ears off and we say, nope, not helping you, not open. Don't think you'll be hurt either. If you go to the prophets and you read the prophets, most of their rebukes are on this score. You don't consider the little guy. You marginalize them, you oppress them, you mistreat them. A lot of it does have to do with the poor. Oppression, loving, the lack of love for others. And that's rooted in idolatry and all that. Proverbs 28.9, he who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. That's a horrible place to be. You stop listening to his law. You become wise in your own eyes. You stop picking up the Bible. Think of that. You stop picking it up. You stop listening. This is bad for lots of reasons, but you can, you can imagine it. The person becomes more opinionated, more unloving, more unkind. Stop listening to the Lord. Pride is right there. Pride is afoot. <laughs> it is there. 
and the Lord will not listen to you. As a matter of fact, this disposition of not listening to the law is on par with detestable sexual sins in Leviticus that are also called an abomination. So there's plenty of places where we see the Lord takes very seriously how we are relating to sin, what motives we have when we pray, if there's faith when we pray, and if there's a deep concern for the good of others when we pray. And Peter says that the number one priority of relationship that must be intact and healthy and honoring is the way you treat your wife. Don't think it's a small thing. Don't think it's a small thing. It's a big thing. It's a massive thing. But the wonderful thing is, I want to end with a really good thing, good note, lots of hope. Psalm 32 is an exposition of this whole dynamic of harboring sin, its negative effects, and the hope of turning back to the Lord in confession. Listen. Psalm 32. Remember, David committed the horrible sins against everybody. Number one, the Lord, but everybody. Bathsheba and Uriah and the nation, his family, everybody. He didn't want to acknowledge it. He rationalized it. He justified it. He didn't want to deal with it. But then the Lord forgives him. And he captures that for us here. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now David reflects back, and he's telling you this too, to make sure you don't fall into the trap he did. See, David is an example, is not an example, he's a warning. He's warning you. He says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Get the sense of who David was while he was regarding sin, cherishing sin, rationalizing sin, groaning all day long. Just miserable, flat, no faith. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. It's just the Lord just squeezing. Where'd the groaning come from? It's the Lord making it so. Make you miserable. It's a good thing for the Lord to do that. Oh man, it's a good thing for the Lord to do that. Think if he didn't. Groaning all day long, for day and night your heavy your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. You know what it is, late July in Greenville. Walk outside and it's like, ugh. I'm gonna go back inside now. You know? That all the time. Just this depleted ugh, frustration of soul. He said, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity. I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. David wants everyone to know, every Christian husband to know, there's hope. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. 
You know, this is David's prayer for us. This is Jesus' prayer for us. This isn't God saying, pray to me, which is rich if he says that, and he says that in places. This is David saying, Lord, let everyone who's godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. The Lord is a refuge. It's so important. So there's hope here. There's hope. I do want to say a couple things just by way of qualification, then we're done. I don't think that Peter is saying your prayers will be hindered if you ever have arguments with, and disagreements with your wife. I mean, that's, I don't think that's what he's getting at. But it does mean something. You need to keep short accounts with your wife, short accounts with her, and you need to make sure the relationship's good, you're praying together, you're connecting. And wives, you need to let your husband, let's say your husband's not been doing great, and you know it, and he comes to you, you don't want to stiff arm that, right? You don't want to say, nope, you need to grovel for another week until you can come back to me. Don't want to do that either, that's wicked. But husband, keep short accounts. It's on you ultimately, right? It was on Adam. It's on you. It's on me. Keep short accounts with your wife and in your marriage. If they're if they're unresolved issues, resolve them. You know, however long it takes, through love, through wisdom, those kinds of things. But I don't want you guys to think that. I mean, the reality is, I mean, in marriage, marriage can be hard. We can misunderstand each other. We can get mad at each other and all that kind of stuff. The Lord knows all that you got to work through it. Come back together, reconnect, all that. But if you don't do that and you let those things go and fester and the, the wall stays up, that's what Peter's after. And it's on you husbands to make sure those walls stay down. Not up. So, my last little word here. The husbands, the Lord will not prosper you spiritually unless you get your priorities right. Some of you husbands are neglecting friendship, fellowship, and intimacy with your wife. This may answer why you feel completely dry and empty. It might. Could be other reasons afoot, but it might. If there's genuinely that neglect, genuine neglect, I'm just, again, talking about just wear and tear of life and work and those kinds of things, but I don't want to rationalize it away either. You really have to think, does your wife feel upheld, loved, and appreciated by me? You've got to think that. And if there is real neglect, it may explain an abundance of trials that seem to be increasing in the home. It may be why you just feel like the Lord is crushing you. could be why. The Old Testament Israel, when they would become unbelieving, neglect his word, become stiff-necked, God would raise up a wicked king to fight against them. Make it hard. Push them on me. That's what the Lord's doing. Okay. Why did he do it? Well, he does it to get them to repent. I am staggered when I read the book of Judges. Staggered. Absolutely staggered. They become idolaters. Through and through and oppressed by the wicked. And it just says, and then they call out to the Lord, and the Lord sends to a judge to deliver them. 
I'm like, good, your grace, his grace is immense. Absolutely immense. So go to a God that you know his grace is absolutely immense. He wants you to have a good wife, a good life. He wants you to have a good marriage. He wants you to have he wants you to have a marriage where you guys are together. You guys are connected mentally, spiritually. That's what he wants. That's why he says this. It's by way of encouragement. A good marriage is the path to bearing fruit. That's Peter's point. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for your word. Lord, help us to walk in it by faith. Um, Lord, thank you for all my brethren in here. Lord, we all can fall in ditches. I know I can. Help us to remember you. Help us to cause our eyes to look to you as David prays for us, as Jesus prays for us, that the godly may pray to you in a time when you may be found. Lord, you can be found now. We thank you for that. What what an amazing, what an amazing reality that is. What a wonderful hope it affords us. And, and, uh, so Lord, just pray you'd be with all my brothers in here. Help us to excel in this, to honoring our wives as we ought to. Um, wives to respect and submit to their husbands as they ought to. And Lord, and go on and be fruitful in your kingdom as we ought to. Unprofitable servants serving the King of Kings. And Lord, if there's any in here who don't know you, who have never truly called on you at all, Lord, they need to know their sin separates them from you. And Lord, you're not going to listen to them. You're not going to help them unless they get real with their sin. And so, Lord, we pray that this morning that would be the time. They'd get real with their sin. They'd see it as that which separates them from you. And they'd confess it to you. And again, they would find compassion. And then be able to tell all of us the compassion they found in Jesus Christ. And we ask all this in his name. Amen.